Hello, hello, and welcome to Football Outsiders, the takeaway. We round up all the hottest takes from around the NFL landscape, put them under the microscope, take a little look to see how hot they are, how right they are. My name is Kale Clinton. With me, as always, is my co-host, Jackson Roberts. Doozy of a week, as always, Jackson. Great to get into it. Glad we were able to give a little taste to the viewers over Thanksgiving. But now we're in for the full meal. I mean, it's a spicy week, Kale. This is what we, uh, what we always look forward to. There is... The take is fear. I think people got energy from Thanksgiving weekend and are just churning out the takes extra hot this week. I have not seen a better slate in our Google Doc pre-show before. I am so excited to get into this week's episode. We always have like one or two heavy hitters every week. This one takes the cake. We've got to get into it. Starts with Thursday night. Buffalo Bills... New England Patriots duking it out. Not really duking it out. The 24-10 game, they're kicking a field goal down 17. Duking all over the Patriots. Duking all over the Patriots, right? The only touchdown New England scored, first play of the game to a cornerback taking offensive snaps, Marcus Jones. Rough showing for New England. Offense has been woefully underperforming this year which brings in some unique and interesting ideas. Jeff Howe, the athletic, takes a dive into the potential wild landscape of off-season quarterbacking around the NFL this year. We've heard a lot of names get thrown around. We've heard... Derek Carr, we've heard rumblings of Aaron Rodgers, Jimmy Garoppolo's going to be on the market. One name that has been seldom named thus far, it's been seldom referenced thus far, the elder statesman, Tom Brady. According to Jeff Howe, where else could Brady return but New England? Free agent for the second time in his career, How brings up the meeting that they had, that Belichick and Brady had in the locker room, the 20-minute meeting after Pat's Bucks last year, the meeting in the minds that was pre-scheduled. They talk about the natural fit, how it makes sense for even New England because of Jones's contract doesn't really eat into the books. They wouldn't even have to trade Jones. He'd learn so much from being able to sit under Brady for just a year. One hang-up is probably having Matt Patricia as the offensive coordinator. They'd need comfort at the offensive play caller. But Bill O'Brien, Belichickian disciple, former Houston head coach, current offensive coordinator at Alabama, is looking to break back into the ranks of the NFL Legion. Jackson, a reunion in New England between Tom Brady and the New England Patriots put it on the board. Right off the bat here, we are teetering on the edge of hot and extra hot. You know, that, that extra spicy at triple XL. I'm, I'm going to put it there for the people. I'm, I'm going extra hot. I think 
for starters, we forget that Tom Brady is 46 years old next season. So that has to be factored into the conversation. Uh, moved down to Florida, well publicized some of the private uh, turmoil, shall we say, that's been going on for him in the past year. I don't know about moving back to Massachusetts. Maybe it's what he needs. Who knows? The other factors here, and the reason that I'm not going to entirely rule it out, which is part of why I'm putting it an extra hot, is because I don't see it happening, but it's not completely out of the question. When Tom Brady leaves New England 2019, it's all about how he doesn't think he can win there anymore. Maybe he wants to prove he can win with or without Belichick. Who knows? But since then, they've really kind of built up this roster. You think about the things Tom Brady needs, especially at 46 years old. Strong offensive line. They've done a better job of building one this past year. Running back he can throw to looking out of the backfield. Ramondre Stevenson, pretty darn good. And I think that the holdup, and it's an obvious one, and you touched on it, Kale, is it's an offense run not just by Matt Patricia, but also by Joe Judge. Those are not two offensive minds. <laughs> well, in general, Matt Patricia, not really an offensive mind historically, but two offensive minds that I'm not sure Tom Brady wants to sign up to play for in his age 46 season. And here's the other piece of it, which you alluded to before we even got on the air today. Like, how much do we really even blame the quarterback play? How much do we blame specifically Mac Jones for the failures of this offense this year, which by every objective measure has been a huge disappointment and could be much worse than 6-6 six and six if not for the slate of opposing quarterbacks the Patriots have faced. So how much of that do we factor in? And while I'm not completely ruling out Tom Brady coming back to New England, you know, why is that the solution when you have so many other failures? Kendrick Bourne last night is just completely calling out Matt Patricia and the play calling. Okay. You've given me a lot. Let's start. Take scorching, bordering on fan fiction. Uh, <laughs> the, the Tom Brady, the Tom Brady element, I get he's 46. Fourth in DYAR, ninth in DVOA. Hasn't had an offensive line and is dealing with like a litany of injuries to all of his receiving core. Uh, Bucks still can't figure out how to get a run game going. Make fun of Matt Patricia and Joe Judge. Byron Leftwich is a very good play caller. Uh, has not been doing a great job this year. They figure out how to uh, find a lot of really good offensive success with Seattle in the play-action game. It looks like they finally turned a corner. They completely revert back uh, against the Cleveland Browns the following week, uh, night and day stuff. Uh, I get it. I get how it makes sense. Uh, the real singular issue of this team is uh, – the offensive play call. They don't have, they don't have the dogs to run the race uh, on both sides of the ball. But this is, there were people in in the industry calling this Patriots receiving core one of the worst in the league. It's not like it's 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 just not in terms of warm bodies. You can look at Chicago, you can look at Baltimore, you look at Indianapolis. Like there are way worse options than what New England has in Nelson Aguilar, Devontae Parker, Jacoby Myers. Kendrick Bourne, as well as the tight ends, as well as the receiving back options. They're not the most like versatile group, but everyone has one role that they're really good at. Even got even like Tyquan Thornton, who's a bit of a reach in the draft, like is still a good man beater, very fast, can take the top off of defense if you fully let the leash off. Mac like Kendrick Bourne calling this offense out. Mac Jones 
getting caught screaming on the sidelines. Uh, a couple of Twitter accounts, namely Warren Sharp, kind of framed him as like a brat where he's screaming like uh, it, they've lip read it as run game sucks. And I'm not going to get into like a lip reading Olympics with any of these guys. I read it as quick game sucks, which is what Jones called out, which is what Jones called out in the press conference that their plan was to get quick game going to exploit uh, the poor tackling of the Buffalo Bills. Uh, I, you got to take strikes downfield. You can't throw 15 yards short of the sticks on third and 14. Like, it just isn't a good game plan for this New England team. It's, it's, it's getting really, really bad. I, I, we have a statistic called uh, Alex, which is basically yards to the sticks. Jones ranks ninth in our book, and it just didn't show last night. Like, he has the capability to throw deep. We saw it last year where he's throwing some shorter deep balls, but he's completing them in a decent clip. Then over the summer, you get Zabruder film clips out of camp, but there's still clips nonetheless of Jones being able to throw 50, 60 yards in a clean pocket. He didn't have a clean pocket last night. His Buffalo ups the blitz runs without Von Miller. You got NJ Empanessa breathing down Jones' throat. There's snaps where I think like James Ferenc is playing right tackle for the team. They're all mixed up. Like Trent Brown's can put in a blender. They couldn't block to save Mac Jones' life last night. But like when he has the time, he can't throw those deep balls. Like he, he has the capability and he's worked on that strength. There, there were concerns by myself when writing the book chapter, Greg Bedard when he came on, concerns expressed by Tom Curran over at NBC Sports Boston, uh, that the Patricia Jones hybrid offensive play calling scheme is going to break Mac Jones. And if that's hyperbole, they've come pretty darn close to it this season. It has been really bad. This is a salvageable quarterback with a high football IQ and move around in the pocket. I'm, I usually give quarterbacks benefit of the doubt uh, in a lot of cases. In Baltimore, uh, in any given Sunday this week, I really put a lot on Baltimore's play calling and their receiving core early in the season. I was a big uh, thumper of it's not Brady's fault when Carolina game or the uh, Pittsburgh game looked a little bit more like Brady's fault in the Carolina game. I have a tendency to give quarterbacks benefit of the doubt when I've seen talent out of them. And I've seen decent talent out of Mac Jones. I've seen at least game managing the, the benchmarks cousins, but like cousins is a fine quarterback, at least for now, if you're going to keep him on a rookie deal thing is with the investment that you've had in this offense from a personnel standpoint, via contract, supplement that with the right play call. Don't just bring your buddies in. Belichick's doing a fantastic job having an overperforming defense given the personnel that they have getting reps at him, you know, Josh Uche turning fourth rounder, Jack Jones into a bona fide, like really good starting corner, uh, converting Jalen Mills into a really viable corner, doing some really awesome stuff with big nickel, three safety defenses. He can't, he can't keep uh, being stuck in his ways on offense. He can't keep using retread OCs from former Patriots regimes. 
Like he's got to, you know, see the sign of the times. Like, like this Patriots offense is not enough to keep going forward. Brady or not, they've got to update this playbook and have someone who's able to like nurture Mac Jones a little bit more and call a more efficient game. Yeah, I'm just going to point out one specific moment from that game. I think it's a moment that a lot of people caught on to where it's like they have no idea what they're doing and they don't trust Mac Jones all in one. And I don't know whether to blame this on Belichick or on Matt Patricia or who knows who else. But, you know, you're playing the Buffalo Bills. You're down 10, end of the first half. Bills are getting the ball to start the second half. You get second and one, and the ball goes out of bounds on the Buffalo 35 with still 45 seconds left in the first half. You're thinking at this point, okay, maybe a touchdown still in play here, which would be ideal because you're going to give the Bills the ball back, and who knows if they go get their own touchdown. Definitely want to secure the field goal. And they run the ball on second and one. They end up having to call a timeout off that, and then they run a quarterback sneak on third and one? Like, where are the, where's the brain power? Where's the aggression? Where's just football minds saying, we need to go score here? Like, this is absurdly conservative play calling. It's showing no faith in Mac Jones to make a play downfield. If you're going to run the quarterback sneak, at least wait until fourth down. At that point, okay, maybe you need to pick it up and make sure you get the field goal. This is second and one, third and one. These are deep shot downs in two-minute situations, and you're just showing no faith in the guy. They end up taking their last time out with 32 seconds left. They never crossed the Buffalo 29-yard line when they were at the 33, 45 seconds earlier. Like, what are we doing here? This is this is basic, basic stuff that the play calling and or just the overall scheme and lack of trust in the quarterback is, I mean, that's where you lose the game right there. Had no chance after that. We have to move on because we could talk about this for a whole show block. Oh, we could. Getting into the headlines. Speaking of disappointing teams, Jackson. The Athletic Football Podcast. Athletic Football Show, Nate Tice, Robert Mays. Beautiful work over there. Not the first time we featured him on this show. To the sheer disappointment of the 2022 Russell Wilson, Nathaniel Hackett, Buffalo Bills. It's been a lot going on this week. You know recent vote of confidences in Nathaniel Hackett to stay through uh, this season. You get uh, Russell Wilson losing the locker room, Bo Callahan birthday party kind of stories this week, chaos in, in Denver, uh, defensive lineman screaming at Wilson on the sideline in between special teams plays. Robert Mays breaks it down. In terms of first-year coaching performances that end up as one-year coaching performances, Broncos might be up there as by far the most disappointing team of the decade. Let's hear it from the man himself. In the last 10 years, there have been six NFL coaches that were one and done. Okay. Mike Malarkey in 2012, Rod Chazinski in 2013, Jim Tom Sula in 2015, Chip Kelly in 2016, Steve Wilkes in 2018, and Urban Meyer in 2021. <sighs> Every single one of those teams before the season had Super Bowl odds of 100 to 1 or longer. Every, every single one of them. The oh. Broncos Super Bowl odds coming into the season were about 17 to 1. Oh my God. That's I think you could make an argument 
that based on preseason expectations and based on what it has looked like, they might be the most disappointing team of the decade. Most disappointing team of the decade, Jackson. Put it on the meter. It's going high on the meter, but like it's comfortably high. It's not, you know, off the meter, Tom Brady pipe dream hot. It's it's just regular hot for me. I think what makes it hot is sure, if you if you couch it among, you know, the Urban Meyer Jaguars and and Rob Chizinski and whoever else, then it definitely makes them seem like the most disappointing team of the decade. I think there are other candidates to consider of teams who like I'll give two examples here that I think are in contention. Um, one not with a first year head coach at all, one with basically a first year head coach that I think people forget because he was an interim coach before. We have the 2018 Jaguars, they of Saxonville, they of almost beating the Patriots in the AFC Championship game the prior year, bringing back the same team essentially, um, winning their September Super Bowl against the Patriots in Jacksonville to move to 2 0. A very braggadocious team, Jalen Ramsey at the head of it. Uh, the previous season coming off, we're going to the Super Bowl and we're going to win that thing. Uh, they did not. They start to know they finished that season five and eleven. So that is one for me. And the other is the 2019 Cleveland Browns, who the only other head coach that I can think of who is consistently ridiculed on a week to week basis as much as Nathaniel Hackett is Freddie Kitchens and that 2019 Browns team with all the hype around year two Baker Mayfield, all the talent they bring in. Odell Beckham's there. They're going to really do it. Uh, they did not. Kareem Hunt comes in the building. Like, this is supposed to be the team. Nope, another 6-10 and 10 Browns season. That being said, I think with those in there, you can still make a very compelling case for these Broncos, Kale. I mean, the preseason wins expectation is one thing, but just the way it's fallen apart, the way they're not just not winning games, but they're potentially the worst and most anemic offense of the past decade. I mean, we're talking about them in the same breath as the Josh Rosen Cardinals. I mean, what has happened to Russell Wilson? He's not even a top 20 quarterback anymore when he was, you know, the prized trade target of the offseason who was supposed to turn a franchise around. Jackson, I don't know how we'll do how we'll do a year end show. Uh, maybe I, I've been thinking maybe we do a, we do a moratorium on our worst takes. If we do that, I would like to present my article uh, on uh, the Broncos just need a little patience uh, as one of, if not the uh, worst take I've had this year. Uh, it is, this team is bottomed out since I wrote that article, admittedly. But I, st I listen, side tangent to what we're talking about here, then we'll get back into the take. I still see some good in Wilson. He's like, off-field stuff I can't account for. On-field stuff, I think we've overrated this receiving core of Jerry Judy, Courtley Sutton, uh, KJ Hamler. I still think Wilson's able to really like get a competent offense going and make those throws if there's a good offense around him. I think he needs more help in the play calling uh, department than he has in other points in his career. Back to the tape. I get what you're saying with regards to that Jacksonville team, that Kitchens-Browns team, who 
Kitchens was another interim coach, yes? That's another interim coach from the previous year and therefore does not count in Robert Mays's metric of one and done head coaches, but effectively was a one and done head coach in a sense that he took over the team in the offseason and didn't go well from there. Listen, I I won't fully blame expectations in that department because probably a bad decision to buy into the hype uh, in the same way. It's, it's I mean, Jim Tom's next year. I'll say that. Yeah. So let's get into it. I went back and tore through our almanac. You can go get with an FO plus subscription, our full catalog, 20 years of deep dives into the modern NFL previewing seasons. I went back and looked at each of these teams and their relative performance. Now, just keep in mind, when we talk projected wins, the bell curve that is created of this projected wins kind of truncates the ultimate ends, like the, the extremes and the positive and the negative. That being said, you can certainly tell which teams are better performing than the other. We also do uh, projections for uh, on the clock which is 0 to 4% chance that you have a 0 to 4 win team, and mediocrity, which is the percent chance you have a 5 to 8 win team. Let's start. 2012 Jacksonville Jaguars, a mean projected wins of 6.1, 23% chance they finish on the clock, 52% chance they finish mediocre. Their actual performance, 2 and 14, second overall. 2013 Browns, mean projected wins of 6.7. On the clock, 20% chance. 43% chance of finishing mediocre. Actual performance, they finished 4 and 12, 8th overall. 2015 49ers, mean projected wins of 6.8. 20% chance they finished on the clock. 41% chance they finished mediocre. Actual performance, 5 and 11, 7th overall pick. 2016 Eagles, mean projected wins 6.9. On the clock, 17%. Mediocre, 43%. Actual performance, 7 and 9. Didn't have a first round pick because of the Carson Wentz trade the year prior. 2018 Cardinals, mean projected wins of 7.6. On the clock, percent of 12, 37% mediocre. Actual performance, 3 and 13, first overall. 2021 Jacksonville Jaguars, mean projected wins of 7.0. 31% chance finishing on the clock, 41% chance mediocre finish. Actual performance, 3 and 14, first overall. Now we get to the Broncos. Mean projected wins of 9.0. 10% chance of finishing on the clock, 33% chance of finishing mediocre, 40% chance of finishing as a playoff contender. That's 9 to 12, I believe, or higher. They are finishing currently third and eight and are projected to finish third overall in the draft by Tankathon, but they're giving up that pick to the Seattle Seahawks because they acquired Russell Wilson in the process. It's bad. This is a very, very overhyped team. By far, the biggest difference in mean projected wins to actual performance. No team comes even close to the six-win gap that currently stands between the Broncos' projected wins and their actual totals. Among teams who fired their first-year head coach. So let's just caveat that. That was a selective sample size. I understand that, Jackson. Let's take the 2012 Jaguars as a different example. If the four-win difference between mean projected wins and actual performance with a 75% chance to finish below 500, 
is enough to fire the head coach. A six-win differential with a 40% chance to finish as a playoff contender and compete in a highly contested AFC West, which is factored in to that, like two of those calculations. They um, beat the Niners. They, they have the a great Niners. defense. That's the, I mean, that's what makes it more disappointing than anything, I think, is if they were going to be a letdown this year, most people, I think, would have assumed it was going to be on the defensive side of the ball. Our fearless leader, Aaron Schatz, was very public about saying if the Broncos, if it goes wrong this year, I think it's because our projections are kind of overrating their defense and I see it taking a step back. The entire season, they were floating around the number one defense. Maybe it takes a dip just because they're sick of, you know, picking up all the slack for Russell Wilson, which I think we saw play out on the field. It has in the Carolina game. Like the fact that that's the one, like the Sam Darnold led Carolina Panthers is the team where a genuine top five defense just kind of calls it quits. Like just really looks like in product is phoning it in. Like that's when you know it's bad. It's over. Yeah. I mean, there's there's no world in which Nathaniel Hackett returns next year. And the thing is, you're absolutely stuck with Russell Wilson. So the reports that he's the one that's lost the locker room are, in a word, concerning. I think you've really got to take a long look in the mirror this offseason and think, okay, what positive, winnable traits does Russell Wilson still have? Who can we bring in to design an offense around those things that he still does well? He still throws the deep ball well. He's still mobile, even if he isn't going to like stretch plays with his legs like he used to five years ago. There's still talent there that puts him in a winnable quarterback tier if you can figure out an offense to build around him, and they have miserably failed at doing that this year. I get all the off-field stuff. I get that he's corny and he loses the locker room if he continues to be corny and not put up points, but he's going to be there. So they've got to figure out some way to make it work next year. Yeah, they are stuck with that contract. And there's still, still a couple throws that sell me on Wilson. Uh, you know, there's, I believe it was the Buccaneers game, where they have one comeback route uh, to Cortland Sutton that sets him up in the end zone. That basically when Sutton turns around, the ball's in his chest right here. Like, Wilson could still really put those balls on the numbers, can still throw in time, can still hit deep balls along the sidelines. It's just you need a play caller to maximize that at this point in Wilson's career. Moving on. Sticking with franchise quarterbacks that you might be stuck with. We all saw it last week. The Mike White performance against, again, against the Chicago Bears team. That's pretty banged up in the secondary. Is floundering right now. Had started Trevor Simeon over Justin Fields. Mike White had a day. Mike White had an absolute day, and Richard Sherman's going as far as to say, might be worth keeping him. Might be worth building around. And then you hear about how his teammates are talking about him. They talk about his work ethic. They talk about how prepared he is, even when he was the number three quarterback. You you hear about how happy they are for him, how much fun they're having. That's when you know you got a special guy. And, And again, if this was the number two pick in the draft, if we just took everything away and swapped the stories of Zach Wilson and Mike White, and it was just Mike White drafted two, and he's playing this well, and his teammates are saying this about him. You'd be like, the, the, hey, they made the right pick. Like, man, look, they got a franchise guy. And, but since he was a fifth-round pick, since he's an unheralded guy, you're not talking about, oh, well, they found their franchise quarterback. He's a franchise quarterback. If you're going to sit there and wait for a guy. Jackson. There it is. Franchise quarterback Mike White put it on the meter. 
He's a franchise quarterback. No doubt he's the guy. Um, wow, I'm I'm finding myself going back to extra hot here. Now, he might be. You might be right. I respect the take. He's played four and a half games as an NFL quarterback. Really not even that much uh, when you consider that he came in, I think, in relief at one point, right? Yeah, relief in that uh, Patriots game. So four game sample size as a starter, has played two really good ones, came out of one early due to injury, and in the other one went 24 of 44 with no touchdowns and four picks. So hey, great performance last week. It was against the Chicago Bears. Let's see Mike White beat a defense that's not the Chicago Bears. And then we'll start talking about him as a franchise quarterback. That's all I want to see. He might still be that guy. He's got eight touchdowns and eight picks in his career so far. A lot of good, a lot of bad in a very small sample size. They play the Vikings this week. That's a good football team. It's not a nine and two football team by DVOA projections, but this is an actual test. Let's see if Mike White passes. And then I'll start thinking about having the franchise quarterback conversation. I just don't think we're there quite yet. Yeah, I'm putting this all the way on cold just because it's hyper-reaction. Mike White's five games he's played in as where he's, th- where he's done like meaningful work. Got a good performance in a blowout loss to the New England Patriots, 54-13 loss. Threw two picks in there, took a sack. But like he's making passes, he's throwing two hundred yards. Relief that game too. Like it's a, a lot of a lot of up in the air there. It's a it's a tough performance to make, but he did have a touchdown pass in there. The Cincinnati game is the game I will bang the drum for week in and week out. Taught Zach Wilson like it's an Aesop's fable of a game. Taught Zach Wilson a lesson in death by checkdown. Thirty-seven for forty-five for four hundred yards, three touchdowns, two interceptions. I think he had like. Had some stretches in there, but I think he had an eight out of like five. Like he's throwing mostly slants, mostly screens. Just like I said, death by check down. They go completely run heavy against the Colts. He only throws 11 balls. 95 yards. He got hurt hurt and then he tried to come back the next week from that injury. Yeah. They completely take the ball out of his hands. They try and do some more death by check down against the Buffalo Bills. And the Buffalo Bills. Basically, just play cover two. Sit five guys in zone, five yards deep. And all of a sudden, Mike White can't throw the ball. Uh, has no options to go deep. What I will say is year over year, Mike White's earned that number two spot as starting quarter or as the second quarterback over Joe Flacco over the course of, you know, a month. He was originally inactive, started moving into DNPs and actually getting making the game roster uh, around week eight. That game against the Bears this week. He's hitting real throws. Like, he's hitting 20, 30-yard balls. Like, he's actually throwing strikes over the middle against a not-great secondary, but a good enough secondary to at least test you. I'd like to see if he continues that next week. Because it's not just the one throw quarterback where he's just like quick read slant, quick read slant. Teaching that thing Zach Wilson had not done up to that point for the New York Jets. Let's see it in another game. Let's build a resume of two, three games in a row. I just want to see the same level of play. I want to see, hey, this is what the Jets were able to do last week against our division rival. 
here is what we can do to stop that. I want to see Mike White make adjustments. That was the perfect spot to bring him in, right? Like, things had gone so wrong the previous week against a good Patriots defense. Everyone's down on Zach Wilson. They don't see him as the guy. They're not riding with him. So obviously, if Mike White puts up a good performance in that Bears game, he's going to win over the locker room. Well, the Bears are an easy defense to do that against. I mean, you you put some respect on their name, but they were playing without Jaquan Brisker. They already traded away their two veteran leaders on defense, including Roquan Smith, who's still their leading tackler. Um, You know, he's going to get the job done. Great job, Mike White. Did exactly what he needed to do in that game. But I think actively what we're both saying is, okay, now they're, pl- they're playing a team that expects to make the playoffs and is loading up uh, to try and win this game and put themselves in position for a first-round bye. How do they respond? I'm not saying he can't win this game. I, I kind of like them in this game. But, you know, it's, it's a much different can of worms, and that's when we can start having the is Mike White the solution long-term instead of, oh, this is just a good, you know, morale story, getting away from Zach Wilson, getting the guys back involved in the offense. Let's move on. And we've got another kind of will-they-won't-they at the quarterback position. ESPN's Mina Kimes going to bat for Jacoby Brissett as Deshaun Watson re-enters the Browns' starting job against the Houston Texans, come back from suspension. Mina Kimes says Jacoby Brissett is more than a game manager and downright deserves a shot to lead another team as starting quarterback next year. Let's hear her say it herself. You know, as the Brissett era likely comes to an end in Cleveland with a win, I just want to take stock of what he's accomplished there, walking into the most chaotic situation in the NFL, and then after an up-and-down start early in the season, has played some of the best football of his career. Over the last month, six touchdowns, one interception, second in the NFL in completion percentage over expectation. He has not just been a game manager. He has been accurate, tough, decisive, and I believe is actually better than a number of starters in this league and i hope he gets that opportunity again based on what he put on tape this season mina Kahn's going to bat for jacoby Brissett. put it on the meat i see check check and check on that list of uh qualifications you just listed i mean jacoby Brissett is playing like an nfl starter i don't think there's any doubt about that we've talked all year about geno smith playing above his expectations and it took Jacoby Brissett a few weeks to get there. I do specifically remember a game losing interception against the New York Jets that we just spent a lot of time on in week two. He's really come around, and it's a shame that he has to come out when he is. Uh, Putting it on the meter, I'm going to just go lukewarm here. I think it's like down the middle. I think just saying that he deserves a shot to, you know, work his way into a starting position next year, like I think that's kind of a given. You know, you bring in a young guy somewhere, you bring in Jacoby Brissett to be the veteran to push him in camp, and maybe he wins the job. Uh, Maybe he's a mentor to somebody next year. I don't know if any team is just outright bringing in Jacoby Brissett to be the guy. That, I think, would be a very hot take. If you're saying, like, Jacoby Brissett is one of the hottest names in the quarterback market this offseason, sign me up to dissect that hot take. But for... For what he's done this year, I definitely think it's it's undeniable, you know, given that he's a top 10 quarterback by, you know, DYAR, by DVOA metrics. Like, he's earned he's earned that right to compete for something next year, no doubt about it. Lights average go Brissett. Let's talk about the sample size that she has presented for Brissett. Last four games. This is against the Cincinnati Bengals, the Miami Dolphins, the Buffalo Bills, and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Which, by the way, 
That Tampa Bay Buccaneers game is a swan song if this is Jacoby Brissett's last appearance this season. Uh, an overtime win against, you know, anecdotally one of the most clutch quarterbacks in football. Just fantastic. But going into this game, leads a win against uh Cincinnati Bengals team. Puts up a 98.7% single-game offensive passing DVOA. Against the Miami Dolphins, a game that they lost pretty handily, he wasn't the problem. They let up their worst defensive DVOA game of the season, defensive passing DVOA game. And it wasn't fantastic from an offensive perspective, but still finishes 22 for 35 or 212 yards and a touchdown. You know, kind of game-managing stuff, short yardage stuff. Against a Buffalo Bills secondary the next week in a game they lose close. Puts up another pretty show-stopping performance. A 90.8 offensive passing DVOA against a top 10 defense by passing DVOA. And then last week against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, 23 for 37. 210 yards, a touchdown, and a pick. Making some clutch throws down the stretch. But he's doing this against the number nine defense by DVOA. By pa- this, these are all secondaries. These are all pass defense. Number nine against the Cincinnati Bengals. Against Miami, number 25. Bit more of a break. Buffalo, number seven. Tampa Bay, number six. A very impressive resume of games against three of the top 10 passing defenses in the league. You've got to give him some kind of credit. I mean, is he going to get 20 mil a year next year? No. Should he be brought in in about a third of NFL camps to at least give a guy a run for his money? Like give a guy a testing camp and give Jacoby Brissett a shot to outright earn a starting job? Yes. Well, that was the move this offseason. It worked out for the Browns in a sense that they kind of knew Deshaun Watson would be suspended, so whoever they were bringing in kind of needed to be the starter. Uh, and that obviously hasn't worked out in terms of wins and losses, but I think Jacoby Brissett has played every bit at the level you could possibly expect. But yeah, I mean, look at the other teams out there that were bringing in retreads to start this offseason. Look at what the the Falcons have gotten out of Mariota. Look at what the Steelers initially got out of Mitchell Trubisky. I mean, this is light years ahead of what those guys were able to do, what a lot of other either uh, new quarterback edition starters. I mean, obviously he's been better than Russell Wilson. Uh, What established young guys like Mac Jones and Zach Wilson have been able to do. Like, he'll get a shot. I I think that is is why it's a down-the-middle take for me. Because he's going to get that shot because he's absolutely earned it with his play this year. Over at FO, we got to put ourselves up to scrutiny. Usually, we'll pull from Aaron Schatz, we'll pull from Derek Class, we'll pull from Brian Knowles and Mike Tanier. This week, it me. Football Outsiders published their list of best value contracts and value deals for all 32 NFL teams over at ESPN+. Yours truly had the honor of writing such a list. And we get into a lot of names on this list, a lot of UDFAs, a lot of current starters. There's some hot takes in there. I put Jacoby Brissett as an argument for most value contract of the Cleveland Browns. 
Geno Smith makes an appearance as the other quarterback on this list. I make some hot take arguments like Matthew Judon for New England, uh, despite being the highest paid player. But there is a name on this list that you may see that stands out among the rest, and it is Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes, who signed a 10-year, $450 million contract in the NFL last year. The highest value contract, not just in the NFL, but all of sports. And it is, in my opinion, the best value contract on the Kansas City Chiefs roster. Not only do you have, by APY, the best quarterback in the league already locked in with the fifth best value contract. Its structure relative to others is brilliant. Let's take the two examples of quarterbacks that have already signed deals ahead of Mahomes. Kyler Murray, Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers sets the new ceiling. 50 mil a year. That's the new ceiling. Kyler Murray pretty much sets the new floor for this next generation of quarterbacks. Making exactly in I don't know if it's just petty petty contract negotiation, but making $100,000 more in APY than Deshaun Watson's deal. Deshaun Watson's deal is an albatross. No one is giving quarterbacks that fully guaranteed contract. We'll see if it happens with Lamar Jackson. If it really happens with Lamar Jackson, this contract skyrockets in value for Mahomes. But new ceiling set by Rodgers, new floor set by Kyler Murray. Meanwhile, Mahomes' deal has no guaranteed money attached after 2024, no dead money attached after 2025. Now, Mahomes' cap hit in 2023 is a huge chunk. It's coming in 20.2% of Kansas City's cap. However, the way that his contract is designed, almost all of Mahomes' money in the first five years is given out in roster bonuses that are locked in for the next year. Here's an example. Main form of payments for Mahomes' contract, roster bonuses. Easily converted into signing bonuses if you do contract restructures. Contract restructures can be spread ad maximum across five years. In 2027, Mahomes is going to make $59.95 million. That would be the single highest cap hit for an individual player in NFL history. However, because of the way the contract structured, million of that roster bonus can be converted into a signing bonus. And then he can take a much like a very reduced cap hit, then stretch that out in dead money across five years, still make the rest of that contract very affordable. He doesn't become a $50 million a year quarterback till 2030, Jackson. The salary bonus, like there's some hints of it in the deal. The base salary bumps up to 10 mil on that 2027 year. So it looks like the year that they're going to restructure it for. There's a wonderful article written by uh, Mr. Christofferson. I had fan sided covering the Kansas city chiefs. I wish I remember the first name. Uh, He explains this very, very well, but there's so like, there's some cap gymnastics you can do where basically any year you want to create cap space, you can create it against Mahomes' deal and make Mahomes one of the most valuable quarterbacks in football. Because not only is he getting you consistent like MVP caliber performances, not only does he elevate every player around him, look at the wide receiver roster around him this year and the non-Travis Kelsey tight ends around him, but now his contract is malleable as clay 
and you can do whatever you want to your salary cap based on his contract. You have an extra 40 to $50 million of a well to n- manipulate and flip around whenever you need extra capital. Jackson, Mahomes, $450 million deal. Best value contract in sports. Put me on the meter. Yeah, I like what you've done here, which is say, you know, put me on the meter, evaluate me. But first, what you've done is impassioned argument in favor of your take being a good take, which power to you. It, you know, it sounds like a good take. You've, you've done a good job with that. Um, I think, I don't know. It's hard to say because you are like evaluating him for the purposes of this article against the rest of his team and not necessarily across all quarterbacks, but obviously we have to take into account other quarterbacks because that's the positional value argument and where the value for the chiefs comes in. I'll go hot take because I think you can say like, okay, Juju Smith Schuster making $3 million and being a very good receiver could be more valuable to the chiefs this year uh, from a salary cap standpoint. But I mean, the devil's in the details with all these quarterback contracts, fully guaranteed money, obviously a difficult thing to wriggle out from if your quarterback ever stops performing. Once again, I will bring up Russell Wilson on this show because Russell Wilson cares a $31 million dead cap hit in the year of our Lord 2026. Patrick Mahomes is a lot better than Russell Wilson. Patrick Mahomes' contract is more team-friendly than Russell Wilson's. People will look at that $450 million price tag and perhaps get a little bit antsy about it. But as you have accurately said, there are ways for them to mess around with the cap from year to year to make sure that Mahomes is not just dominating their entire salary book and not enabling them to bring in guys who can help them win. Jackson, a little peek behind the curtain for you. You mentioned one Mr. Smith Schuster. (laughs) Take a look at our Google Doc. This was the write-up I gave. If the Mahomes contract wasn't accepted as <laughs> contract dense legalese thing, Smith Schuster was my other example. Well, it's so easy, right? I mean, Byron Pringle signed a more lucrative deal than Juju Smith Schuster did this past offseason. That was a home run for them. Absolute prove it deal for him. You can judge 31 other of my takes if you take a look at the article on our ESPN Plus subscriber, but we got to move on. I won't put myself on the guy. ESPN Plus. Good stuff this week, Neil. I won't put myself on the meter. I feel a little biased. Thank you, Jackson. (laughs) Let's dive into our fantasy roundup. This one starts from Fantasy Football Today, a Mr. Heath Cummings. He's got a little hierarchy dispute in rookie running back. Starting Damian Pierce over Isaiah Pacheco. Let's hear it from Heath. One question for each game. Here we go. Heath, Chiefs at Bengals. Um, Pacheco, start or sit? I would like to get away from him. Um, I think this is going to be more of a passing game than a running game for the Chiefs. I think he is one of many running backs in that touchdown-dependent flex range. He's one of the guys I've not moved ahead of Damian Pierce. Um, I would definitely start Pierce over Pacheco. Pierce over Pacheco. Put it on the meter. I think it I think it's pretty hot. I I think that look, Damian Pierce over the course of the season, more consistent performer. But I'm a former Damian Pierce fantasy owner, Kale. I, I happen to have traded him away this week. Uh, and the reason I did that is because I watched the past two Texans games in which Damian Pierce rushed 15 times for a total of 16 yards. 
I'm not blaming all that on Damian Pierce. I think he's a really talented running back. I think teams have accurately figured out that they want to run their whole offense through him. They're going to give him the ball on first down. They might give it to him on second down as well. And they're just saying, no, you have either Davis Mills or Kyle Allen playing quarterback against us this week. He's going to have to beat us. Furthermore, part of the argument that people get into against Isaiah Pacheco is the target volume. It depends on the fantasy format your league is, if you're playing half point, full point, or no PPR. Damian Pierce is not doing much in the receiving game either. He does have six targets this past week. He only turns it into three catches for eight yards. And in previous weeks, he was getting zero, three, one targets. So, I mean, I know Isaiah Pacheco is going to do his damage on the ground. I know his value is greatly decreased if and when you ever get Clyde Edwards-Hilaire back. But guess what? He's on IR. He might not come back at all. And Isaiah Pacheco, if we look at his past three games... 82 yards, 107 yards, 69 yards, all that being on the ground. And he adds in the touchdown for you as a sweetener this past week. I just think Pacheco is really good. Like, I, that's all. I, I think Pacheco is a valuable fantasy asset at this point, And you should be trying to stay away from any Houston Texans by any means necessary. Couldn't be more right. Downright freezing take on this. Mm. Not only I still need to nail down what exactly I we can we both have different senses of what the meter means, and that's fine. I yes. like that. <laughs> Downright wrong take. Hot in all the wrong reasons. That's why I'm calling it cold. Isaiah Pacheco is not really as like as touchdown dependent as you may believe. Isaiah Pacheco, since he started, he started the last five games for the Chiefs, according to Pro Football Reference. Eight carries for 43 yards, five carries for five yards, six carries for 82, 15 for 107, 22 for 69, and a touchdown. Damian Pierce, last five games, 15 carries for 35 yards with three receptions for 16, 27 carries for 139 yards, 17 carries for 94 yards with two catches for 28, 10 carries for eight yards, two catches for nine yards. Five carries for eight yards, six catches, or three catches for eight yards. Jackson, you don't have to be a mathematician to see one arrow going up, one arrow going down week to week. Pacheco's getting opportunities. He's only had two receptions in his five weeks of starting. Last week, he had a 17-yard reception. Against the Titans, he had a four-yard reception. That's you know, pittance. We're not doing much with that. What I care more about is the bell cowback stuff, is the running game stuff, is the fact that he is becoming a more singularly impactful running back in this offense. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, still on injured reserve. Jarek McKinnon is getting less and less, and is doing some pass-catching stuff, but is not cutting into his rushing opportunities. Melvin Gordon, unless they elevate him, from the practice squad this week, and all of a sudden he starts ripping, you know, 15 carries off in the first week he's with the Chiefs, I'll wear the egg on my face on that. I'm not going to, like, that's that's not in the cards for me. So I'll, I'll take an L if that's the case. Yeah. Isaiah Pacheco is looking to be a single back option in the Chiefs run game. Freezing cold take for me. I'll take, yeah, I'll take the guy in a better offense, especially when he's been getting, you know, that 
at least 15 carries per week threshold the past few weeks. Like they're clearly trying to incorporate him. And you've known all season that the Texans are trying to incorporate Damian Pierce. But when the offense around him is so bad, I don't want to hitch my wagon to that. Give me the guy who has a line that can open up holes for him, has a, you know, one of one quarterback and a one of one tight end to divert some of the attention. When you see that he's going to get his touches, you have more faith that he's going to do more with them because the defense has so many other things to worry about. Listen, I'm a Nico Collins believer. I'm a free Brandon Cooks guy. Rest of the season, I'm not touching the Texans. And I've liked what I've seen out of Damian Pierce. There's just no reason to touch the Texans, especially as they're trying to compete. It's basically a white flag if Damian Pierce is getting 20-plus touches at this point. Because there's no way they're leading in games to justify those touches. Moving on, Roto World for NBC. Miami Dolphins. They get into the nitty-gritty of the Teron Armstead injury for the Dolphins. Calling it a borderline disaster for the passing offense for Miami. Let's hear it from that. This Armstead injury is is serious. And and yeah, you're right, Pat, about... You know, he's he's more out than in. I, I don't think he's going to play this week. Um, Miami has allowed a 26% pressure rate with Armstead in the lineup this year. That pressure rate jumps to 55% when he's out. Um, some of that is without Tua under center when he was out with the concussion. Uh, last week against Houston, Tua was sacked four times on 11 dropbacks without Armstead when he, when he exited the game. Yikes. And against a, a, a pretty fierce San Francisco uh, pass rush, I I feel like this is like a border, borderline disaster for, for Tua and, and the passing game. I'm not saying that you can't start like you're starting Waddle, you're starting you're starting Tyreek and everybody, but I don't think that they can let anything develop downfield. I think it'll be a bunch of dinking and dunking. I do think they will pass a lot, obviously. Um, I also think that, that this could open up some more targets for the running backs, maybe Jeff Wilson, maybe Mostert. It depends on Mostert's health and his involvement. Tua's upside is shot. The ceiling shot without Teron Armstead. Borderline disaster for the Miami Dolphins. Put it on the meter. Ah, cold. Like, I don't agree. Just because, you know, you can take the small sample size mid-game against Houston when they were already winning a blowout. You know, you don't want to to be taking those hits and those sacks, but they've had a week to prepare for life without Taron Armstead now. Um, I just don't... I, I haven't seen Mike McDaniel, like, get out foxed yet, so I'm not going to project that it's going to happen until it does. Like, they, every game that they have started and finished with Tua under center... They have figured out a way to get those receivers involved, to get them open downfield, chunk plays. The running game's gotten better as the year's gone on. They brought in Jeff Wilson. I guess the take is like specifically centered on Tua, but I just don't agree because I think you have those two guys who are two of maybe the top seven wide receivers in in fantasy and just in football in general. They're going to be wreaking havoc some way or another. You know, you can throw a three-yard slant to one of those two guys and still have it be a 75-yard touchdown that all counts for Tua in the fantasy numbers. So the Niners matchup, obviously difficult. A lot of familiarity there with both sides. I get being a little bit nervous about that matchup for this week, but I don't see any reason to, like, get off the Tua-Miami train at this point when they've shown nothing but the ability to make the most out of their circumstances all year. 
Jackson. I'm calling it hot and I'm calling it right. Not wow. only is not only is Teron Armstead out, Austin Jackson has already been ruled out of this game. I think even like to a ceiling, taken away. My I I did say Miami's gonna win this game. You did. Outright, because the biggest weakness is San Francisco's secondary. She was the best deep ball thrower in the league by DVOA right now. San Francisco is 29th in defensive DVOA against the deep ball. So if they can get there, they can do it. That being said, I don't like any Miami players against San Francisco this week. Because as they said, and this is this is if you're playing daily fantasy, this is if you're playing week-to-week fantasy. Week-to-week fantasy, you kind of probably have to start them. But that being said, you're probably getting more quick passing going, getting the running backs more involved. San Francisco is eighth in adjusted sack rate this year. It's 33 sacks on the season. You're maybe not going to be able to get the deep ball stuff more established. In terms of time and pocket, two has actually been pretty accurate in quick game. 70.5% completion rating, 11 touchdowns, 1,500 yards. The ADOT and the air net yards per average, according to Pro Football Reference, stays pretty consistent compared to, you know, it's not that far off from the two, uh, you know, when you have two and a half seconds or more in the pocket. That being said, it is a little dire for me. You're taking like, good offense beats good defense, man. That's, I, that's how I think it works. I get what you're saying. But you're probably taking opportunities away from Tyreek and Jalen Waddle because you're still trying to get the deep ball stuff out of them. You're still trying to run like a lot of scissors deep. You're still trying to break apart cover twos. You still need those field stretchers in the game. You're probably going to more stuff in the flats as bailouts just to need time. I'd argue like two might be the safest option where the ceiling's taken away, but you're still getting a lot of leaning on passing reps. You're still getting a high floor. San Francisco, like they run the same San Francisco run offense because it's Mike McDaniel. So they're probably well-equipped in taking that away and seeing that in practice every week. But just the fact that, like, Tua's going to have his volume. It's just going to not come in big field-stretching stuff. It's going to come in slants. It's going to come in bubble wraps. It's going to come in screens. It's going to come off RBOs. It's very different than what the Dolphins are traditionally have traditionally had success with this year. Hey, I'm not saying that Miami's going to win this game for sure. I am saying that I think in between the bubble screens and whatever run offense they cook up, whatever wrinkles they can think of that maybe Shanahan hasn't seen uh, that D'Amico Ryan specifically hasn't seen from McDaniel before in between all that, I think there will be one 50 plus yard Tyreek Hill touchdown in this game. I think at some point the levy just ends up breaking. It's, it's like, you know, you do everything perfect for the entire game on defense. Eventually, Something just doesn't work out. I I think back to that AFC championship where the Patriots shut out the Chiefs for the entire first half. And then in the second half, Mahomes just starts coming out and zinging bombs downfield. I think against an offense this talented, eventually even the best defensive game plans lose their steam at the end. Yes, the, the left tackle injury concerns me, but... Again, I haven't seen a mark against this offense yet this year when they're fully healthy, so I'm going to continue to put my faith in them. We shall see. Pretty rare for us to end up on opposite sides of the debate. I like it for us. Gives us some variety. 
Need it. Funny that you were the one that picked Miami to win in the column this week, but hey, that's diversity. Listen, it's called hedging your bets. <laughs> picks, picks, picks. Speaking of picks, Action Network, Stucky. Not the first time that we've thrown Stucky's picks on this show. He has got a hot ramp. Seven and a half against the Seahawks as one of his best bets for week 13. Let's hear Stucky explain it himself. Okay, it's hard. I can't even say it with a straight face. The Los Angeles Rams <laughs> plus seven and a half against the Seattle Seahawks. Um, I'm just, I'm assuming there's no Donald. There's no staff. I'm assuming they're just getting shut down for the year. Yeah, there's no cup. There's no Allen Robinson. The offensive line is a mess. Uh, Bryce Perkins is starting. I don't even I don't even know who's starting. I'm assuming it's Bryce Perkins again to get his second start. Uh, I don't care. I cannot get anywhere close to this number. These are still professional players playing. They're not going to quit. And I, I said earlier this year, I said the 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 Rams without Donald and Cup when they looked like they were both hurt. I said they're basically like the uh, and Stafford are basically like the Texans, which is, <laughs> which is fair. Which is fair. They're I think wish they had Damian Pierce. Yeah, they're Our a little more... looking good to me. Jackson, put it on the meter, but I mean, yo, I too was thrown by Stucky in the middle of his argument for the Los Angeles Rams, uh, unfavorably comparing them to the Houston Texans. Was not prepared for that. He does go on to say, divisional matchup, better coach team than the Texans. Sean McVay knows the Seahawks inside and out. I get all that, but. This is a hot take because you are making an argument for a team to cover a spread to be competent in a football game. And you're basically saying, well, now they don't have any of their best players and they're basically a JV NFL roster. That is tough to reconcile. And hey, props to him for doing it. Props for believing in this, you know, minor league baseball version of the Los Angeles Rams roster. Just don't know if it's going to work out for him. I mean, listen, we, we've thrown around that's a lot of points on this show before. A touchdown spread is not huge. I get, like, here's, here's the breakdown. Outside of Jalen Ramsey and Bobby Wagner, Rams' defense is very heavily built. Like, without Aaron Donald and Ashawn Robinson, Rams' defense is very heavily built up of like a lot of day three picks. Like, ta- like Taylor Rapp is an exception. We've got a couple exceptions in there, but like, you know, like even like Troy Hill, who's been good this season, but has, you know, been up and down. Very, very suspect sort of defense. I guess, you know, Leonard Floyd's still playing. So like, they've got bodies on there, but like the depth isn't there. Offensively is much scarier to me. Like you've got a lot of offensive line out. Matthew Stafford out. Allen Robinson shut down for the year. Cooper Cup still on IR. Outside of Tyler Higby Jackson, there was one player on the Rams with more than 20 catches this season, and it's Ben Skoronek. The Currently, if you rule out Cup and Robinson, the third player in targets of, for the Rams is Daryl Henderson, who the Rams cut recently. Uh, like, you've got Van Jefferson coming back. He hasn't made, like, a tremendous impact since his injury. He's still working back. Outside of that, you got Brandon Powell, Kyron Williams, Tutu Atwell. 
the run defense for the uh, Seahawks is probably their biggest weakness. And the Rams don't have a run offense. Like, against this offensive line, with Kyron Williams and Cam Akers as the lead rushers on this team, it's not like you have a ton to worry about right now. I just don't see it. If this is this is all like hard data too, the anecdotal evidence is that now the Seattle Seahawks are behind in the division race. Geno Smith is talking about like you've got to be like we went from being the hunters to the hunted. This is a perfect tune-up game for them in terms of just like matchup opponent figuring out stuff they need to do. They lose this game. Now they're really trailing in the playoff picture. It's a must-win scenario for the Seahawks. I think they're going to put foots on throats, pedal to metal, like really try and make a, like really lean in on offense, really try and shut down on defense. Whether it's Bryce Perkins or John or Wolford, I think it's Seahawks all day. Yeah, let me just throw even more gasoline on the fire here. The Rams have one of the worst-looking injury reports of any team this week, even if you take out all the guys who are already on injured reserve. After Stafford and Donald, you're still looking at Troy Hill didn't practice Thursday with a groin injury. Two linebackers, Traven Howard, Ernest Jones, actually a third linebacker as well, Terrell Lewis, all didn't practice either Wednesday or Thursday. You've got center Brian Allen, who's been limited all week in practice with a thumb. And just to top it off, Cam Akers and Odea Bushi are sick and not practicing this week. So that is a comprehensive, like this team is just get me to the finish line. One of Stucky's other arguments that didn't make it to air for us was that they don't have their pick. So why do they want to tank? There's no tanking here. They're going to play for pride. And I get that Sean McVay, Super Bowl winning coach, but I just think between the injuries and... All that's gone wrong for the Rams and the fact that they're still sitting on a title from last year, I think it's pretty much uh, checkout time at the last chance saloon. And I think everything you've said about the Seahawks holds true as well. Listen, pride is one thing. Recognizing depletion is another. Like, this is a depleted roster with not a lot to work with. It's a shame. It's a, it's a real, real tough position to be in. And like, yeah, like like he said, they're a professional football team. I don't love the roster around them because, you know, outside of the Stars and Scrubs model, I don't know how many players who will get meaningful snaps in this game would be getting those same meaningful snaps on another roster. <laughs> That'll do it for us at the takeaway. However, got one thing left. We can't be the arbiters of takes without throwing ourselves to the fire about without giving some takes ourselves. Jackson, put yourself out there. Make yourself vulnerable. Give me your take. Put yourself on the meter. I would love to, Kel. It maybe isn't my hottest take because it is a popular gambling pick around the NFL universe this week, but a lot of people are just picking this team to cover I'm going to say, what the heck, let's pick them to win. And that is because I think that the Mike Vrabel, Derrick Henry, Tennessee Titans are going to walk into Lincoln Financial Field on Sunday and come out with a win. I think it's going to happen. Here's why. This is a matchup of strength on strength. We know Philly wants to run the ball. They're the number one rush offense by DVOA. Guess what? Tennessee 
Number one rush defense by DVOA, negative 29.1%, 5% better than even the Niners who are in second place and more than twice as far in the negative direction as the number six team on our list, the New York Jets. They are extremely good at stopping the run. Bullet point two, Titans haven't really been as efficient in the run game this year as we'd expect. They're 18th, but we know they want to pound the ball to Derrick Henry. We know that Derrick Henry can take advantage of bad run defenses. Example, the Houston Texans game where he puts up another 200-yard, two-touchdown performance. The Eagles are 24th in rush defense DVOA. I think they can exploit that. I also just kind of anecdotally, I picked this as the Eagles' first loss back when they were undefeated, and we were wondering when that loss was going to happen. I obviously did not foresee the four-turnover disaster of the Washington Commanders on Monday Night Football in the forecast, but I originally thought this would be when it happened. Maybe their eye isn't off the prize now that they've lost one and feel like they need to win in order to keep the one seed, but I just like the matchup. I like the coach. I like the narrative, taking the Titans to win this week. Have some caveats, have a little pushback. I don't think it's, I, I don't, I think it's hot. I don't think it's that hot. I think it's a smart and sound bet. Didn't say I it was hot, super hot. Pushback I've got, this Titans team has not had a lot of rushing quarterbacks to worry about. And technically, while Josh Allen wasn't a very big rusher, in his game against the Titans, had one rush for 10 yards. The three teams they've played with rushing quarterbacks, the Giants, the Buffalo Bills, the Kansas City Chiefs, have all been L's. The Chiefs had the best rushing day against Tennessee. By a quarterback perspective, Mahomes finished six attempts for 63 yards and a touchdown with a longest rushing attempt of 20. That being said, like I think Henry's probably like you said, the biggest X factor in this game. The Philadelphia Eagles, for as bad of a run defense as they've been, didn't do that bad against the Green Bay Packers, who have the best running back by DVOA this year in Aaron Jones. Aaron Jones pretty much shut down against the Eagles, 12 rushing attempts for 43 yards. A.J. Dillon does a bit better with eight, you know, a lot better. Eight rushes for 64 yards. One of those come, uh, and a touchdown. One of those come off a big 20-yard breakaway run. So they're getting a little bit better. And as you got Linval Joseph and Ndamukong Sue in the fold for this team, you got Jordan Davis coming back as well, but they're getting more reps. I can see that being the model of defense. But Derrick Henry also does a great job getting to the second level. And that's where I have the issue with Philadelphia's run defense. I don't have the linebackers to really bring them down. Once they get to that second level, it's kind of all or nothing stop at the line of scrimmage. Like, that's your one line of defense. I like it, though. I like seeing Phil. Not, I don't like seeing Philadelphia on a, on a bit of a skid. But, like, if they were taking a bit of a skid, it's against rush-heavy teams. It's against teams where you don't have to worry about, th- like, throwing against now gone C.J. Gardner-Johnson. But James Bradbury, the (laughs) phenom safety, apparently, Reed Blankenship, Hmm. uh, it's a really good secondary to work against. You don't have to worry about that as much in this game. 
I like taking Derrick Henry props in this. I certainly see that. Yeah, you've got that. You've got the Traylon Burks emergence coupled with the C.J. Gardner-Johnson injury. Maybe there's some interesting juice there. As you mentioned, they still have not one but two very good shutdown corners in Bradbury and Darius Slay. So maybe you're not feeling great about that, but it is a possibility. And yeah, I just like I like the rushing opportunity here, uh, and I like that the Titans although Jalen Hurts may have something to say about it, have at least shown a propensity for shutting down run-first teams. Interested to see how Philly responds to that. Uh, And uh, there's obviously the whole revenge game narrative with A.J. Brown going against the Titans, but I don't think a receiver really gets to dictate whether or not it's a revenge game unless he just gets himself wide open. Maybe he can do that. He's coming off a sickness. I'm certainly a proud A.J. Brown fantasy owner, so I wouldn't mind if that happens, but... You know what? This is a hot take show. I'm not going to give you something super lame. I'm not going to say the Eagles are going to win. That's not a hot take at all. I like the Titans this week. I'm going to stick with it. Well, Jackson, thank you very much for closing out the show with bringing the hotness. Not, not bringing that lukewarm stuff. Bringing the hot takes. Put yourself all the way to the right side of that meter. That'll do it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening to The Takeaway. Got to shout out our sponsors. At Underdog Fantasy. Play at Underdog Fantasy with us and double your first deposit up to $100 with promo code OUTSIDERS. Are your season fantasy, season-long fantasy teams floundering? Play Underdog's Battle Royale, a fast six-round weekly fantasy football draft with easier chances to win than traditional daily fantasy sports sites. You can even win $50,000, yes you, if you grab first place or you could try the Pick'em Games where you can easily pick players' chances to go higher or lower than their projected stat lines, even in states where traditional prop betting currently isn't available. Underdog is the fastest-growing fantasy site around. Join the fun over at underdogfantasy.com or download Underdog in the App Store and use promo code OUTSIDERS now to double your first deposit up to $100. Jackson's Underdog Fantasy Pick of the Week, Kale. Tyreek Hill, you don't like it. He's going to catch a 50-plus yarder contentious contentious conversation in the show but hey i like your boldness you can also check out all the stats that we used over at fo plus so you get all the nitty-gritty data that makes us one of the primary resources to go to for football analytics you get our fantasy databases you get our betting databases you get the full archive 20 years of football outsiders almanacs a lot of which I cited in this show to help us get some historical perspective on just how bad the Denver Broncos are. You can also join us in the FO Discord, chat with us on Sundays, break it down with some of the outsiders themselves, me, Aaron Schatz, Brian Knowles, Mike Tanier, Vince Verhey. You can also subscribe to us on the YouTube channel. You can listen to us over on the FO Podcast Network. For Jackson, I'm Kale. Thank you, as always, for listening, and we will see you next week.